This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Hey everyone, Andrew here. The last couple of episodes, we've taken a bit of a detour away from clinical cardiology and and reviewing cardiology topics. Uh, Today, we're also staying on that detour bit, um, but returning somewhat to the realm of clinical cardiology, and we'll be doing more of a history lesson um, regarding thrombolytics for acute myocardial infarction. I learned recently that the person who pushed the first dose of TPA, uh, at least here in the United States, uh, Dr. Phil Ludbrook, uh, has been here at WashU for many, many years. So he's now an emeritus professor, uh, still has a lot of clinical responsibilities that he does. And so I met with him to talk about the story behind the first patient that he treated with TPA and really how he came, became involved with it. Uh, it's a really interesting story and there's a lot of um, a lot of lessons that can be learned from those trials undergoing uh, investigating thrombolytics for acute myocardial infarction. I mean, we talked for a couple of hours and I really struggled to pare it down to, to put it into just, you know, here like a 45-minute episode. And some of the cool things about Dr. Ludbrook is that, you know, really he was in on the, really on the ground floor for thrombolytics and additionally as well for angioplasty. So he has a lot of personal experience with those and shared a lot of pearls with me. Um, I really enjoyed speaking with him. We met over at the, uh, in the nuclear medicine floor at Barnes Jewish Hospital, which is actually the location uh, where the first dose of TPA was given. So in the background, it's, it's still an actively used right now. Uh, for nuclear stress studies. So in the background, uh, through the audio, you're going to hear some of the nurses and other staff intermittently from time to time. Um, So my apologies for that. Um, But I found it just to be a really fascinating discussion and very instructive, so I hope you enjoy it. Maybe first, can I have you say your name and your title? Uh, I'm Philip Ludbrook. I'm a uh professor of medicine and cardiology, and a professor of uh, psychiatry, both emeritus appointments nowadays. Okay, very good. But I still um, work in a clinical clinical and research and uh, teaching setting, probably about uh, three quarters of the time. Very good. And uh, we'll talk more about this later, but where are we sitting right now in regards to uh, the topic mm-hmm. of thrombolytics for acute myocardial infarction? How does this location stand in relevance? Yeah, physically, that's a, a good question because we are here on the nuclear medicine floor. It's 9300 on Barnes uh, Jewish Hospital's main building, which is where the cath labs were located. Um, when the first TPA was, first dose of TPA was given in uh, the early 1980s, about 1983, 1984. And we are in a reading room now, but the cath labs are just five paces across the corridor. Um, we had three cath labs here at that time, and that's where this particular first protocol, which was using a form of melanoma TPA, uh, was actually instigated. Okay. Very interesting. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that later on with a couple of the stories that you have related to that. Yeah, we're on site at the moment. We're right on the site. Okay. Very cool. The 
to give a, a background of the case for thrombolytics, to share a brief case, my first and actually only mm-hmm. exposure to thrombolytics in the setting of a myocardial infarction was while I was doing a, a rotation up in Juneau, Alaska, small rural town of about 30,000 people. And I was shadowing in the emergency room. This was during medical school. And we had a gentleman come in, and he had a large anterior lateral ST elevation myocardial infarction. And so he was given TPA and put on a plane down to Seattle, um, which was the closest PCI-capable facility for them, which is like an hour and a half plane right away. And that was when? That was the summer of 2013. Okay, so very recent. Yeah. Um, Based on that, some interest in the use of thrombolytics, which is a bit less common uh, in major centers, but still in use in more rural settings. Right. I guess part of my question is for you, knowing that you're very involved in the development of thrombolytics and their use. I guess first one, I go back to when thrombolytics themselves as like the drugs were first discovered. And we'll talk about kind of the theories that then developed behind that led to them being used in acute myocardial infarction. And that begs the question as to what thrombolytics are. And there are several different classes of thrombolytics, of course, Um, when we say thrombolytics these days, we usually mean a form of TPA, but that hasn't always been the case. We've had urokinase and streptokinase around for a long time. And as a matter of fact, some work was done in pharmacologic thrombolysis using both those drugs, urokinase and uh, streptokinase, probably initiated by Saul Sherry. Um, it would be the mid to late 70s. Streptokinase, which was the more available agent, was not very pure, and it uh, resulted in quite a number of adverse reactions. Um, it was, in fact, antigenic in many cases, and uh, its use was never really um, organized. It was done on a... On a uh, case-by-case basis, and there was very little impetus for doing any particular trial, partly because it was so poorly tolerated and apparently ineffective. Mm. But the idea was there that uh, potentially um, myocardial infarction was a condition induced in many cases by thrombotic occlusion of the coronary artery, although that itself was only established a few years prior to that. The mm. initial wisdom, which goes back to uh, Bill Roberts, who was a pathologist at the NIH in the early to mid-70s, the wisdom at that time was that the clot was a secondary phenomenon. The occlusion was ruptured plaque, or just plaque, and stasis and thrombosis as a secondary phenomenon. And that's because they were doing post-mortem exams of the heart. Bill Roberts was a pathologist. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's all he really had to go on. Um, Then it became clear from a number of uh, studies that the thrombus was, in fact, the genesis of the occlusion. And... uh, Progressively, it became apparent that dealing with the thrombus may modify the infarction. Streptokinase, urokinase were known, but were not really very 
available or effective. And about that time, we're dealing now in the early 80s, early, uh, maybe 82, 81, 82, mm-hmm. uh, even 83, there was a, uh, a new development from a hematologic scientist in Levain in Belgium, um, and his clinical staff, his name was Desiree Collin, um, and uh, he actually developed a scientific lab way of growing uh, malignant melanoma cells. There was a line of particularly malignant melanoma cells, I think coming originally from a patient in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, elaboration of TPA and thrombolysis has a survival advantage, if you will, to, to cancer cells because it means they can break down barriers to mm-hmm. their propagation. So it's good for the little critters to do that. And actually, he grew these malignant melanoma cells in petri dishes and uh, developed the product MTPA, melanoma TPA, from the supernatant in the petri dishes. Okay. And it, uh, it would take him two to three plus weeks to develop a single dose in his lab. And he gave some of this preparation to thrombosis models in rabbits with induced peripheral venous thrombi mm-hmm. and observed the phenomenon of thrombolysis. And that was very interesting and he realized the potential for this drug and uh, was giving a talk at the NIH, International Symposium. And uh, it didn't really get very good reception, but our chief of cardiology at that time, Bert Sobel, whose, whose name should be well recognized in this history, um, cottoned on to the potential and arranged a collaboration which led to a, I guess we call it a study, but it was a collection of individual cases, some five cases in which MTPA was given either intravenously or intracoronary um, to, uh, I believe the numbers were um, about uh, four patients from here and one or two from Levain in Belgium. Okay. And that was the initial study. And uh, thrombolysis was achieved in, I think it was four of those five patients. And that became the first major article published in New England Journal in 1984 of thrombolysis in myocardial infarction with use of MTPA. Um, Clearly, it was not a very practical way to produce pharmacologic quantities of TPA. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that recognition, the uh, genetic engineering firm in San Francisco, Genentech, which was the original firm that now continues to exist, has Mm -hmm. been very successful. And by genetic engineering techniques, they elaborated recombinant or RTPA, um, which became then the preferred pharmacologic for all further 
interventional trials of acute myocardial infarction. Is that basically the same formulation that's used today? So that is basically the same formulation. Okay. I'm sure there have been changes in the expression, the genetic expression and engineering, but basically it's the same drug. Okay. We had uh, much less precise idea of dosing than we have now. And uh, that was uh, that was developed through a whole series of studies over the next five to eight years. Okay. So those studies were in order. Um, a collaborative study between ourselves at WashU and Hopkins and MGH. I'm trying to remember the exact number, but it was of the order, I think, of about uh, 20 patients who all received in this protocol, intravenous TPA. Okay. The original one was a mixture because we really didn't know whether it was going to have to be given intracoronary mm-hmm. or intravenously. Um, although the obvious hope and really the expectation was that it would be an intravenous form of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, in the midst of all this, how did you personally then become involved yeah, in these? Yeah. So we have a bit of the history of these. Yeah, let me just finish the the sequence of that story because after okay. that collaboration in those three institutions, then the NIH became very interested and that led to the um, creation of what subsequently had become the TIMI or thrombolysis in myocardial infarction series. So the TIMI-1 was a direct randomized study of intravenous RTPA and IV streptokinase, mm-hmm. multi-center, large multi-center study that had to be cut short of about, uh, probably about halfway through because the reperfusion rate, this was done in the cath lab mm-hmm. with the doses of intravenous TPA versus intravenous strepto on a randomized basis. Um, with immediate follow-up by coronary atrophy to prove the presence or not of thrombolysis. Mm-hmm. So that had to be halted prematurely because of the higher success rate, which was substantial, of RTPA versus streptokinase. I see. So that was TIMI-1. As you're aware, there are now probably 50 or 60 TIMI studies out there. It's mm-hmm. branched off a long way beyond thrombolysis. But that was Timmy One, okay. chaired by Gene Braunwald, and uh, we were a part of that as we were the initial first two studies. Um, but that's the story. The, uh, I guess the the thought behind all of this was that use of an intravenous drug in patients with acute myocardial infarction would be a a very major gain for people with acute myocardial infarction for whom the treatment before that really had just been prevention of arrhythmia okay. and uh, anticoagulants to prevent ongoing thrombosis wherever possible, but not anything that would mod- modify the infarct in process. So here was a, a way of intervening directly and establishing coronary reperfusion. And although it is true that Gronsing and others were already playing with 
uh, intracoronary interventions, mechanical interventions, balloon and guide wire interventions. It was the discovery of chemical thrombolysis that really set not only the thrombolytic regimen off, but the whole idea of mechanical intervention in patients with acute myocardial infarction. Mm. So in, in effect, the initial TPA studies were the, the basis for the whole process of reperfusion intervention in acute myocardial infarction. It was initially thought that chemical thrombolysis with an intravenous injection would be superior because of its ready availability. And it can be given in your little hospital in Alaska mm-hmm. or in the largest institution without much time loss with relatively little risk. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned out over the course of many studies that there was a potential for getting a better reperfusion rate with mechanical intervention than thrombolytic. So the interest and the level of acceptance swung more toward mechanical intervention and obviously it has continued to do so since. Mm-hmm. The best reperfusion rates in any of these studies with RTPA and everything was thrown at it were probably, was probably on the order of uh, 65 to 70%. That was probably the best we could achieve, at least in that era. Uh-huh. And, uh, and mechanical intervention could achieve thrombolysis or reperfusion, just to use the more generic word, in over 90%. Mm. Chemical thrombolysis was still interesting because it could be given in, in, as you are aware, all of these hospitals that don't have cath labs. Um, Although it was the impetus for cath labs growing in number enormously, so that eventually uh, every hospital felt they had to have a cath lab so they could intervene in acute myocardial infarction. And in all of that, the important underlying principle has been one of haste. The the aphorism, uh, minutes are myocardium, grew up. And it became realized very quickly, again to a large extent, by studies that came from here using positron emission studies of myocardial metabolism, that the earlier you refused, the better the myocardial salvage. Now that sounds obvious, and not in need of proof um, at this time. But that was not well known originally. And at the big meetings, the American Heart and the American College meetings, there were always debates. Where is it going to go? Is it going to be a thrombolytic um, interventional world or is it going to be a mechanical interventional world? Um, Obviously, in the end, it's not really a case of who wins. It's what is the most effective, most practical, and uh, I suppose cost-effective regimen? Well, I think we didn't pick the most cost-effective. Mm-hmm. Um, TPA, even now, genetically engineered RTPA, still costs um, $15,000 a dose. It's very expensive. Wow. And it's very laborious, just like all the recombinant insulins and other drugs are. But that's a heck of a lot less than an acute mechanical intervention. Mm-hmm when the stents can cost that much by themselves. Sure. 
so that's where we are now. Uh, chemical thrombolysis is still used. Um, it's used in areas, in places where mechanical intervention is not immediately available um, in order to provide some measure of reperfusion while the patient is transferred to another center. It's obviously used <clears throat> when uh, mechanical intervention, for whatever reason, is not successful or fails after initial success, and they go in and reperfuse. Mm -hmm. So there are other drugs, um, of course, which uh, probably are wiser to use than thrombolysis in that setting. Um, but there is still a role for both. They're still both important. The, the important thing looking back, I think, is the comparative evolution of those two techniques. Realizing that, although it's obvious to us now, and to the present generation beginning now, that you do better if you have an unblocked artery. Mm -hmm. That originally had to be proven. And it had to be proven, even before that, that the thrombus was the progenitor of the infarct. Mm -hmm. not the after result, as Bill Roberts initially proposed. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's a fantastic story of history, particularly for people who are learning the science of medicine, to understand that there were times when we didn't know the things that are so obvious now. now. Uh -huh. And those things have to be established by, I won't say trial and error, but certainly by trial. Mm -hmm. um, This was one of the earliest, I suppose, instances of a, a, a revolutionary new treatment being established by outcomes-type research. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not just a postulate that, yes, of course someone's going to get better if you open their artery, but actually putting that into practice, but first by way of a, a small exploratory trial, as we did of the five patients, um, and then a slightly larger study between three institutions, and then the large TIMI studies. Mm -hmm. It's a very good example of that whole process of evolution of outcomes-based clinical trials. Yeah, of the development of theory and then the, the trial of the intervention. Yeah. yeah, development of theory and then a product becoming available that someone goes out and finds, improves, and improves. And it wouldn't have happened without the instigation of huge uh, megalith companies like Genentech who were poised to produce this thing. It would never have taken off if it, if it had remained a small lab producing minute quantities of MTPA. Yeah. The other parts of it that are worth talking a little bit about it was the collaborative parts too, um, particularly the whole story of myocardial reperfusion and the studies that were done by PET on myocardial metabolism. Okay. Those studies on myocardial metabolism were also a big part of what propagated chemical thrombolysis because we proved that it could work. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can have Q-wave infarction and your Q-waves persist and you can have varying degrees of hypokinesis or akinesis at the infarct site, but that overall you have rescued or saved a proportion of the myocardium. So at the very least, you've reduced or minimized the size of the resultant infarct. Mm 
Now, as our time from onset of occlusion to reperfusion becomes shorter and shorter, then also proven is the fact that the amount of residual viable myocardium improves. Um, and that gives rise or gives scientific proof to the whole idea of uh, minutes of myocardium. We had to stop the interview at this point on our first day because a patient across the hall, um, let's just say he had a markedly positive stress test after receiving his regadenosin. So we had to go take care of that. So then I went back a couple days later and we'll pick up there. The last time we had talked, we had just finished up primarily some of the the bigger overview of like the history behind thrombolytics. Yep. And what I wanted to go in today was more about your personal experience and how you then became involved in those early studies and trials. The, uh, the group that I came he here with from San Diego under Bert Sobel and uh, with colleague Bob Roberts and Phil Henry um, were all interested in myocardial metabolism and particularly as it uh, is reflected by ischemia. Um, we all were um, the right word we had all been brought up in that tradition of research by Gene Braunwald at UCSD. In fact, my research fellowship at UCSD was under Gene Braunwald. But I was really clinical, and the, the basic research that was done there was in myocardial metabolism and ischemia and uh, the initial description of MBCK as a marker of ischemia and reperfusion injury and a lot of other related things like that. But MB in general, and uh, both in animals, particularly in animals, but also in people. And when we came here, uh, Bert Sobel, who was the chief, um, established an animal lab and very quickly got into PET scanning, which was brand new at that time. And he recognized the potential for using PET scanning to really determine what was happening at the myocellular level with both ischemia and reperfusion mm. and potentially other insults to um, cardioversion, for instance, but a lot of other possibilities, beta blockers, use of other drugs. Uh, so that was the theme that we came with here to further... Um, examine myocardial metabolism with PET under a range of different clinical conditions or induced conditions. Mm -hmm. And as we discussed earlier, the idea of coronary reperfusion in myocardial infarction was strengthened when uh, the uh, reports of thrombosis as being the inciting factor in myocardial infarction was proven and it was realized the clot was the problem, not the result of the infarct. Mm -hmm. So attacking the clot became a very obvious target. And the potential for 
doing chemical pharmacologic thrombolysis without having to induce a systemic lytic state, mm-hmm. that the possibility of thrombolysis or reperfusion by whatever means as a uh, clinical tool in the big picture became very tantalizing and uh, potentially attainable. Mm-hmm. Um, those things just kind of floated together at the right time. That is the idea that, number one, drugs like TPA, which really is a facsimile of the body's own endovascular TPA, mm-hmm. um, that could be administered uh, with efficacy, without induction of a systemic lytic state and a reduced incidence of bleeding, that it all began to happen. And uh, that made it apparent that intervention and, if you like, manipulation of the course of acute myocardial infarction was a very feasible goal. And although thrombolysis was the first to get off the ground, it became evident for reasons we discussed yesterday that um, catheter-induced or, or interventional or PCI or whatever word you want to use, um, induced thrombolysis was probably more effective or it was effective in more cases with more persisting reperfusion than was TPA alone. And we had gone through the initial phases of do we have to give TPA intravenously or intracoronary, and we had some idea of the dosage requirements, because that was an experiment too. Mm -hmm. And looking back, I am mortified by the number of bleeding episodes that we saw in those early do- do- days because we didn't really know what doses were appropriate. Mm-hmm. And in the Timmy 1 study, which I mentioned was the randomized study between IV strepto and IV TPA, um, when we were really doing some dose finding, we were just escalating dose week after week after month after month for the trial until it was recognized, and actually I think it was ourselves who blew the whistle that, hey, wait a minute, we're inducing a lot of intracerebral bleeding. Mm-hmm. We've got to be very very cautious about this. So we pulled back on the dosage, realized that we, would, we had probably hit the high spot, and that uh, we should be more cautious, and we should exclude some people who may have an increased risk of thrombolysis. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, of bleeding. Of bleeding, yeah. Um, So getting the sweet spot between optimal rates of thrombolysis with minimal, hopefully no, but certainly minimal rate of intracerebral bleeding. Mm -hmm. And that was a sweet spot that once we established that, then clearly it was going to become a clinical tool that could be um, propagated throughout all hospitals. And with the PET studies that we had done in animals and subsequently in humans, the whole notion of um, minutes of myocardium became well known, and then we were able to move on to the idea of very rapid intervention 
with what, whatever, intravenous uh, TPA or a catheter technique. Mm -hmm. So all of these steps were kind of investigational based on intuition and animal experiments, which is one of the beautiful stories of the early days of cardiology, that so much of it was um, thought through ahead of time on a very rational basis, based on animals, based on intuition and uh, knowledge of physiology and pharmacophysiology, um, and then done in cautious trial fashion to become established. So it, it was it was all planned, um, and this cardiovascular vision grew up, as I've mentioned, kind of transported philosophically from San Diego under under ideas that Gene Braunwald would have been instrumental in developing when he was at UCSD, and John Ross, who was the chief of cardiology at that time at UCSD, Braunwald was the chair of medicine. So a lot of that, a lot of this progress was due to um, new thinking and uh, progressive thinking by people like that, by Ross, Braunwald, Sobel. Mm -hmm. And we brought it here, and I was here largely to establish and run the cath lab, but so much of what we were doing obviously um, lay between the animal lab and the cath lab. Mm -hmm. begun in the animal lab with Stephen Bergman, and then when we became certain enough, it was transported to the to the uh, cath lab. Gotcha. About where were you at in your career when this was happening? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I actually graduated in Australia from med school and did, as, as was the case in Australia and Britain at that time, you did a lot of medicine. Mm -hmm. So I spent... Um, six to seven years doing various medicine rotations, neurology, pulmonary, uh, GI, and so on, and a, and a great deal of cardiology in there, and then went to England, as was mainly the tradition of that time. England was thought to be the, the mecca, and had a good job there for about 18 months, and uh, could have stayed quite happily for life. Mm -hmm. But before I left Oz, I was I applied for a grant, a research fellowship grant from the Australian Heart Foundation that I didn't ever expect to get. And after about um, one half my times through England, that that award was awarded. Mm -hmm. So I picked myself up and family, and we came to UCSD on this grant under Gene Broadwood's mm -hmm. care. So I was, by this time, um, nine years out from medical school graduation. Okay. Uh, feeling the pinch, because the advice was always to young people, you need to expect to be standing on your own feet by 10 years after graduation. Uh -huh. You need to have made it by 10 years. So I was uh, set on becoming a career um, invasive cardiologist and just getting in to the interventional piece of history mm -hmm. and I thought that's what I'd be doing and this was research and practice that really was of great interest and practicality to me. 
So for me, Rediffusion came along at the right time in my academic development to get in on the ground floor, on the very ground floor. So it, it all happened um, as though to a time, and the timetable was just the, the meeting of the scientific imagination and the development of both a form of TPA that could be manufactured and used widespread, namely recombinant TPA, along with the hardware for angioplasty. Mm -hmm. And of course, the firms got into that and it became very competitive and very lucrative. So it was huge progress. So, yeah. answer your question, I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And so inclined to pursue an academic investigational career and make a, make a contribution in that regard. All my colleagues in Australia were in practice and earning wonderful incomes and so on, and here I was at age 30, some with a family. Um, we arrived in San Diego with a suitcase apiece and uh, enough to buy a second-hand car, and that was it. Uh -huh. So my goals were certainly not material. Ah. And that, that made it happen. I think that's why I was able to shift around the world comfortably and happily uh, with, the, with the thought that I was establishing something and making a contribution that was different from many of my previous colleagues. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was right for me. Yeah. Fortunately, Bert Sobel... When, when I talk about Bert Sobel, I do so with um, almost religious fervor. He and Bronwell, I think, were the biggest movers and shakers in cardiology of the era, perhaps mm -hmm. of all time. I don't think there's much doubt about that. In terms of moving from one step to the next, to the next, to the next, and making cardiology as important as it is now. Mm -hmm. And there have been so many spin-offs for the whole field of reperfusion and um, vascular therapy that have migrated into neurology, and vascular surgery, and oncology, and peripheral vascular disease, um, cancer therapy, mm -hmm. gastro, sphincter stents, and so it's, it really has broadened the whole of medicine. Hugely. And it's kind of nice and rewarding without being in any way arrogant about it that I think we made a contribution to all of that by developing techniques that were transportable to other special areas. Mm -hmm. Now, tell me about the story behind the first patient who you treated mm -hmm. with DPA. Yeah. That was part of the study of five patients, which was written up in the New England Journal in 1984. And my position was somewhat awkward in that I was the cath lab director and um, responsible for what went on in the cath lab, and I was also the chair of the IRB. And um, I had to make it uh, very justifiable to myself that it was an ethical thing to give TPA. Um, no, 
not so much the fact that we're intervening in acute infarcts that was becoming an acceptable and laudatory sort of efforts, but the whole notion of this is a drug that we have little knowledge of. With mTPA, there, is all, there was always the concern, is this going to be oncologically transmissible? Mm-hmm. You know, are we giving a protein that may in some way uh, induce oncogenesis? Mm-hmm. Particularly when you talk about malignant melanoma as being the most malignant of all tumors. The rationale that we used, at least theoretically, is that there had been no, and as far as I know now, there still is no proof that any any malignancy has been treated, has been induced by a protein, mm-hmm. by a transmitted protein. What prompted that? So you were, yeah, so um, about the first oh, story. Yeah, the so, so that story. Right. So the director so, of the cast. So with all of that DRB. preparation, which took... Um, far too long a time, and uh, Bert Sobel, being scientifically impatient, was urging on, and we were urging on then. Once we'd set the protocol up and got it through the IRB and got it through the FDA, then you've got to find the right patient. Mm-hmm. And it had to be a patient with a proven early infarct um, who was right. Um, medically speaking, in other words, they hadn't been infarcting for a week. It was in a fairly acute episode. There were provable EKG changes. Um, they were willing, mm-hmm. willing to sign permission to do that. And that took quite a while to find the right patient. And the, the very first one happened in the middle of the night. Um, we were not too familiar with bringing cat lab staff in in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm didn't have that sort of stuff because you don't do we didn't do that there was very little call to do that mm-hmm. um, but we had prepared for that and this was a, uh, a patient who came in and uh, was typical kind of old-fashioned acute pretty sure it was transmural infarct uh, infralateral infarct as I recall um, in whom we were pretty secure that this was going to be a right coronary artery occlusion. Mm-hmm. So it seemed a relatively clean case to try this intervention on in the first instance. And so in the middle of the night with this poor older uh, gentleman um, in the throes of 10 out of 10 pain myocardial infarction, mm-hmm. we had to try and give informed consent and say truthfully, this is what we have in mind. We don't know that it's going to work. We don't know how much of the drug we're really giving. Our estimates based on animal experiments on a weight-by-weight basis, kilogram by kilogram. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't know that the drug is going to be effective or that it may not cause bleeding. But here you are with 10 out of 10 chest pain in the throes of an acute heart attack, which is Mm -hmm. life-threatening. Here are the risks. Here are the potential benefits as we know them. Mm -hmm. We don't know very much. The patient was in the throes of going through that. Up-chucking, I remember, while we spoke. Morphine and all that. Uh Um, And his response was, um, 
do whatever you have to do, Doc. Just like that. Uh -huh. um, and we went ahead and did it. And then uh, I'm pretty certain because that trial of five patients included both transcoronary and intravenous patients because mm -hmm. we were quite uncertain as to how we needed to proceed with that. So it was just according to our best distort at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, I suspect for that first case we gave it intra intracoronary. Um, Steve Bergman, who was a scientist in all of this and done all the experimental work and a lot of the driving force behind it, mm -hmm. a quiet, um, really devoted guy to science, and uh, he was watching outside the lab, and uh, you know you can imagine the look of amazement on our faces when we gave this stuff. And the clot actually partially dissolved, and the pain went away, and STs came down. And Steve's comment from outside was, "Do you believe me now?" Uh -huh. And that was a moment of truth. Um, and I remember going home in the middle of the night and waking my whole family up and saying, "We've just made history." very exciting. And the patient did fine, actually, yeah, as it turned out. And then there was a, really, the rest of those five cases were a mixture. Some were grafts, some were native coronary occlusions. Mm -hmm. I think only one did not reperfuse one of those five. Mm -hmm. So for a first attempt with the drug as little known as EPRIN-TPA was at that time, it was incredibly successful with very little morbidity mm -hmm. and uh, no mortality. I'm going to have to cut you off there. I've told you everything I know anyway. No, I really appreciate you letting me come by that. It's a fun story, isn't it? It is, yeah. And probably one that won't be replicated. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co-sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP, I've Used for My Theme Music. It is used under a Creative Commons license, Attribution 3.0.